Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you're very welcome to this week's podcast, Voices from the Great Houses. I'm Morris O'Keefe, and from our Irish Life and Lore archive, I have selected three interviews with the descendants who once lived in Clontarf Castle on the north side of Dublin, from Ballymaloo House and Castle, located in East Cork, and Mount Trenchard on the banks of the Shannon in Foynes in West Limerick, and finally Glenleam, situated in a scenic part of Valencia Island. And we start with Clontarf Castle. John Vernon, who was General Quartermaster in the Cromwellian Army in Ireland in the 1600s, was granted the castle and lands by Cromwell. The Vernons remained in the castle for more than 300 years, until an agreement was made with John Alton. And he died in 1952 and passed the castle and the lands over to his son, Desmond, And I travelled to Brighton to talk to Desmond and find out more about the family connection. The castle was owned by the Vernons. And uh, the Vernons passed it on from father to son. And then the last person who Vernon to have it was my uncle, Eddie Vernon. And he, his wife refused to live in the castle. She preferred to live in England. And so he had to buy a place in in England to live over there. And the castle was left vacant. And my father, who looked after the Vernon estate on the north side of Dublin, um, he asked, he met... Um, my mother, and um, who is a niece of my uncle Vernon, and uh, he, he fell for my mother, <laughs> and um, so my uncle Eddie said, um, "If you marry uh, my niece, you can have the castle to live in." Uh, and um, so my father, once they got married, agreed to live in the castle and paid a figure to my uncle for the castle. 
but on the understanding that if his son John ever wanted to come back and live in the castle, he could do so when he was 21 years of age. But unfortunately, his son John joined the Marquis in France and during the war he was captured and he was put into a concentration camp which was in the way of the Russian advance and everybody in that camp was incinerated and so that was the end of that. So that's why the Oltons still had the castle. Mm. And the castle was really run by uh, a cousin of my father's, uh, Miss Cusack. And uh, she uh, had looked after all the staff. Yeah. And um, she tried to keep the money side down so that it didn't cost all too much to keep the castle because the up, outlay was enormous. There were about 40 acres of land with the castle. We had cows in the garden. There was the our own garden which was run by the head gardener and he used to produce the vegetables for the castle and uh, the trees in the I remember in the park that uh, when a tree was cut down that had to be cut up by the men and brought into the castle to keep the castle the fires going during the winter (laughs) Uh, can you describe uh, what it was like, the the, the castle itself? Uh, can you describe the, castle, the layout of the castle? The castle was very cold, but huge. And um, we were always looking for... I, I was looking for treasure <laughs> because we had a tunnel under the castle down yeah. to the sea which uh, we had a right of wrecks uh, from going back to Charles II's time because he gave a royal grant for Clontarf to the Vernons um, in recognition of help being given to Charles while he was in exile in France. Yeah. And... uh, we had this tunnel which went down to the sea and uh, it was, after a time, it was blocked up so we couldn't <laughs> go down. But we thought that there would be treasure someplace around the castle because of all the stuff taken up from the ships which were plundered <laughs> in the bay. <laughs> <laughs> I, so it's fascinating, and, yeah. and you were in Trinity, but you. Yeah. But it, I that, came that back. back yeah. Yes, I was in Trinity after yeah, when the war started, and I left Trinity to join up. It was to Trinity I left to join up. And you were in the Irish Rifles. Lon- Lon- uh, yes, London Irish, Irish Rifles. Rifles, which was the territorial side of the Ulster Rifles.
Mm-hmm. And uh, those, uh, but just staying mm. with the castle for a little while uh, before mm. we go into the war years, yes. uh, you're. Um, you were ex- explaining to me that uh, you had some crazy parties there <laughs> with uh, with your friends at, at stage well, different stages. Uh, after my father died, um, I held some uh, parties at the castle, and uh, word got out in Dublin that I was doing this, and uh, everyone came from Dublin, including Brendan Bean. Moira Lafferty and everyone you could think of <laughs> and uh, so I had quite a job in keeping everyone under control <laughs> and one of them being the, they got the fuses in the castle and all the lights went out and I had to, <laughs> had to put that right another time there was a, a sword fight going on they'd taken down the swords from the wall of the castle and were having a go at each other so I had to stop that <laughs> um, So there, were, there, there must have been uh, uh, a lot of freedom in, in a sense uh, I mean you you, um, you, yes. had, you had the running of the castle and this would have been in, in was this in the 50s after the war was over? Um, yes mm. yes it was my father died in 1952 mm. and um uh, the castle wasn't sold, I think, t- till 1957, around that time. So I had the use of the castle during mm. that period. And um, uh, so the, the running of the castle, was that, was that difficult? I mean, uh, uh, well, you know, the upkeep and the management and so on, you know, and keeping the staff there, the domestic staff and that. Oh, no, the staff, after my father died um, my the upkeep of the castle was a lot and we were trying to sell it and um, uh, another building uh, in town was bought, another house was bought for my mother and she agreed to leave the castle and, and uh, with the result that the castle was empty, left empty, and the staff, she just took her, her personal maid with her. Uh, otherwise, all the staff were paid off, and they left. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, was it something that you felt uh, had to be done, or uh, was there any way that you could save it and keep it in the family? I mean, was that uh, there was no way it could be saved because the my father died. Uh, he didn't expect to die so soon, and uh, it worked out that the death duties were so enormous that. Um, the castle had to be sold with a lot of other property. And now we move to East Cork and Ballymaloo House and Farm. In 1835 it was owned by the Leachfield family. They were a well-known Cork merchant family. And in 1923, Helen Morgan, Nee Simpson's father, James Simpson, came to Ireland to manage the farm for his two aunts, Maria and Caroline Leachfield. I spoke to Helen to find out more about the story. 
Well, I, we came over to Ireland in 1923. My father was instructed he had to come. It was the last uncle of us, last Litchfield uncle died. And my father was told it was his duty to come over and look after the Palamaloo for the old aunts. And unfortunately, he was the sort of person who did his duty. And he came over, which was the greatest mistake he ever made because he was a trained mechanical engineer. My mother was an exceptionally intelligent woman. She was a university graduate and that sort of thing. They came over as, well, Daddy came over as manager of Ballamaloo, but he was very definitely on a very, very, very small uh, salary, and we lived in the house. And the aunts. And your mother, where did she come from originally? Australia. Tell me about her name. Her name was Windia, but my husband was, uh, he was Trinity, and he'd been in the um, Graduates Club in Dublin. And one of the men in the Graduates Club was, his name was Fitzgerald, and he was a very strong IRA person, you see. And he was talking to Tom, and Tom said that he'd just got engaged. He'd got engaged to me, and I came from Balbaloo. Oh, he said, I've got a wonderful story about Balbaloo. He said, when, during the war, during the Civil War, you know, he said, um, the maids in Balbaloo used to feed us sometimes, and we used to sleep in the loft. Which, which is, you've been to Balmaloo. Oh, yes. You know where the outside ra- range of bedrooms is, just outside the kitchen door. Yes. Uh, the lofts over there, hay lofts, you see, and the IRA used to sleep there. And he said one night we were there, and there was a great kerfuffle in the house. We didn't know what it was. He said they were having a dinner party for the officers and the fort. The, but he said we kept quiet and they kept quiet and everyone kept quiet, and went out off very well. He said we left in the left in the morning, and the others had gone at twelve o'clock, so it was all right. I know that the the house had been raided once. My one the uncle Jack that died in twenty three, he was a, he did a lot of shooting, you know, game shooting, and the IRA came in and pinched his purdies. He'd a pair of good purdies, oh. and they went. But I, that's the only thing I ever heard that ever happened there. <laughs> I mean, just it was a question. Keep quiet. Keep don't 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 raise. But the, but the must in your obviously your parents must have been when they were there they were uh, no they didn't come till twenty three you see yeah but even at that time they, they, they there was still uh, a lot of threats to property. well yes but you see it was a peculiar position because I think the people there knew that if Daddy wasn't there they'd all lose their jobs mm. you know there was there was nobody to run the place. Did he have many employed? We had 14 men on the farm and three people in the house. Mm. And and in the farm then, was it was it dairy farming or was it... Mixed farming. Um, we had a very, very good herd of um, pedigree dairy shorthorns. That was Daddy's one... One real hate of, of Devalera was that he um, wanted to buy a new bull for his pedigree shorthorns, 
but he wasn't allowed to buy a double dairy one. D- David said, "No, you, you, you. They, they mustn't bring any more bulls in from from Scotland, where they all came from. You must have the uh, dual-purpose shorthorns." So I mean, the the herd went to, you know. Oh, and 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 so and the that herd was went the down. Of mm. Yes, of course. So yeah, you can imagine the frustration and the annoyance yes. of, of. And the then, whole of course, thing. we had that ridiculous. There was that ridiculous ruling uh, about pigs that you weren't to hold keep any pig in Ireland mm. except the large white, and the others you weren't allowed to sell them. You weren't allowed to give them away, and you weren't. Then, if you had them. It was sort of what you do with them. I mean, you were supposed to just chop their heads off, I think. But I, my husband, who was who was a barrister, among other things, he um, said that it was a big joke in the law library. He was they, they were talking about sort of things one time, and someone at the one of the old fellows said, "Well, you know what happened about pigs?" In the, in the uh, somebody wrote up and said, "What can we do with our pigs?" And the answer they got was shave a little bit of its head, of its skin, put a stamp on it and send it to the Department of Agriculture in Dublin. (laughs) We used to go to one dance a year uh, when by the time I I was about 16 it started, you see, um, the Ballycotton Lifeboat Dance, Mm. which was the big entertainment. It cost five shillings. And you got dressed up into a long dress. And, I mean, it was the entertainment of the year. It was in the... Uh, over uh, over the garage. A place over the garage. I see. And who played? Major Watt. He was there. He was the huntsman of the United Hunt, and he had a band... And he used to play for charities. As soon as as, as Ballymaloo went on the market, do you remember the Allens coming over? And uh, well, so we knew uh, the Allens. You see, the the man who bought Ballymaloo, Wilson Strangman, was our next door neighbour. And as long as I can remember, they always you couldn't have Christmas but the Strangmans arrived. Mm-hmm. And you see, he was the they were the Quaker family next door. And it was Miss Strangman who educated us. Oh, yes. And she did the girls. But Wilson Strangman, he educated, I couldn't tell you how many boys. And Ivan Allen came down as one of his protégés, if you like. He, he was at Newtown. He was, uh, it was my first term at Newtown. And uh, he was in a very bad car as, as smash. And he came to rec- recuperate with the Strangmans. Wilson Strangman was the governor of the school, so I mean he was there always. Yeah. We 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 knew him. We knew, we knew them forever. And you see, Myrtle and my sister Joan were great friends. They were Myrtle was three weeks older than Joan. Yes, and so I mean it was. It was not, not. I mean, it was more or less sort of handing it over in the family, n- nearly. Do you know what I mean? I do, yes. Wilson Strangman bought it, not Ivan. Oh, was it? Yes. 
Yes. And so when he when when he so so was it, it, it was it a deal between um, Wilson and Ivan and Ivan yes mm. and and w- Wilson bought it then from from Daddy from your dad because you see by that time the the old aunts are dead were dead yeah and Daddy had it but as I say no no capital. Ballymaloo House and Farm was sold to the Allens in 1948 and in 1964 it was turned in to a restaurant and a guest house and opened to the public. But to find out more about the Allens and Myrtle's early life, I spoke to her walking around the grounds of Ballymaloo. But I left Monkstown when I got married. I was married in 43. So you were quite young. Richard. I was so I was nineteen. You were nineteen, yes. <laughs> yes. And so uh, you're you married into the Allen family, isn't that I right? did, yes. yes. And of course, the war was on then, and yes. you know everything was at a standstill. Yes. I started out hopefully to do architecture, but I, it wasn't really possible. Down in nineteen thirty-two, to as, as at seventeen to help. Another, he was he was a Quaker, and there was he'd been to the Quaker school which I went to too eventually. And uh, this was this man who was a a sort of benefactor of the school in many ways, and he knew Ivan. He knew that he sometimes took parties of boys camping down in Kerry, and he knew Ivan well as a boy. Ivan left school at seventeen, and. didn't know what to do and he asked him if he'd come and help him to run his place in Shanagari, which he did and that's when I met him and, and so that was farming was it? Farming and he, farming was awfully bad at that time and he had to do something else to get money in and he started fruit growing that's interesting, and and uh, so kind of the growing fruit would would have been something uh, special, and you know, he saw the value in doing that. Did he? Well, this uh, before I even came, even they were going into apples mm. uh, because uh, at the apples were making a little bit of money, and the, so they sent Ivan or Mr. Strangman sent Ivan to England to learn apple growing for a period, and while he was there. He visited the Lee Valley, the Lee area, Lee Valley area, where they had glass houses developed. And he saw the tomatoes and uh, other things being grown under glass. So when he came home and he had sold the season's crop of apples and he had much to do after Christmas, he um, decided that he'd build a glass house. And then Mm. he had about five acres under glass when I met him first. And it was madly picking, packing, and everything was sent to England. Because, of course, there was a big demand for any kind of food in England. We were about five years married when he began to wish that he could have a mixed farm as well as a fruit farm. Mm -hmm. And um, we looked around for land that he could develop and have a, have a farm, mix farm on. And there was nothing for sale until this place came up. And he went to the auction, there was no bid. The house was too big and everything was too big, it was too difficult to sell. And um, then eventually he and, and 
Mr. Strangman, his elderly partner, made a bid for this release. They just wrote and said that they could take the place and pay them so much money, uh, and the offer was accepted. How many acres of land was is, is About four acres he got with the house. Did it need a lot of repair? and, and uh, Well, we did change it a bit to make it more uh, easier to run, but it basically was in good order. Mm-hmm. And so starting with that and having the the place, it, roughly the early 50s, was it? Or was it the... the uh, that would be, we bought the house in 48. So we so were yeah, moved in in about 49, I think. Was it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And w- were those days difficult to, to get up and go and, and make, uh, make a go of it? Well, uh, there was one difficulty uh, because we were... The mushrooms and the tomatoes were were very profitable at the time. But we <coughs> ran into a slump. So it was quite difficult and we took much longer to pay for the place than we intended to because uh, we didn't have the income. And um, I think it was at the, the end of the war and things were going in England and they didn't really need to import so much probably. And also then the Dutch tomatoes came on the market and they had certain advantages that we did not have, such as North Sea oil, because heating and labour were the two things that became too expensive. Were you thinking ahead at that stage of well, we developing? Were, and Not particularly, no. We were just doing everything we could. We had our milk from the cows here and we were selling that to the creamery and we had our crops and we had pigs. And, uh, I, I mean, you can still live without uh, making a fortune. <laughs> and we gradually paid off for the house. And so we, were the, the, there were two farms, if you like. Were they still? That, uh, the, the, there was the, the original farm that, that you... It, it well, Shan- yes, yes, but they were really all the same because yeah. my husband, Mr. Strangman, left the farm in Shadigarry to my husband. He left everything he had to him. So they were all his and that was that. Yes. The house was his and the farm was his and the fruit farm was his. Okay, and then there, there was the running of the farm and, and yeah, the running of the house. Yeah, he had to here. just look after yes. it all. That was all. Now, this place is steeped in history it it goes it has so much uh, uh, layers of buildings uh, which date back quite quite far you took a, an interest yourself in the local history yes I, I i am very interested in the history yeah and the so to um to trace back say the the, the people who lived here before the people that you yes bought it from Yes. Who were they? Well, as as far as I have read, uh, and I believe to be correct, they were illegitimate, uh, of illegitimate descent from the Knight of Kerry. Yes. And and would you have noted that's the remains of the castle, which are the the, the tower house, which here. is still here? Yes, yes. Yeah. And they had a castle in Cloyne. Yeah. And this is, they, they, they knew in Cloyne where the castle was and who had it. And it's in somebody's backyard. I've never seen it. There's not much left of it. Really, yes. Mm. And of course, the uh, the landscape and the surroundings here are beautiful with the the um, the trees. Now, a lot of those trees that we're looking at today would have been planted probably 
uh, some by of the them, previous owners. Uh, yeah, some of them, some of them were, and then some of them we planted. But we're still the, there was a lot of planting done in the mid nineteenth century, and those trees are pretty well coming to their end at the moment. You'll see one very sad and sorry one out as you drive out near the drive. So they're dying off, and I suppose we've all, anybody coming in has done a little bit to the place, a bit of planting. And and talk about the 1950s then. They were difficult years as well. The, the, a lot of people were emigrating, and well, uh, yes. what, what was it like around here in Ballymaloo and, and um, Shangari? Was it... Well, not nothing much that I was aware of. I knew people were immigrating and friends and their children were immigrating and people I'd been at school with a bit. Um, but it wasn't anything where anybody was wringing their hands about. I mean, it could be quite called experience in another country. Um, and the farming community was still farming. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then the, the young people that were not taking on a farm they're all bright, clever young people and their descendants come in to me now to help me in the hotel and they're brilliantly clever. They're wonderful. I think they're the best in Europe. And they, they so they stayed and did what they could there and they, they left if they had to leave. Mm-hmm. But they didn't leave unqualified. They went out as managers, as top of everything. Well educated. Mm-hmm. When did did the house? When did you turn it into a, a guest house? Well, uh, the first thing I did was um, the children were quite, getting quite big, and um, I was. I mean, all this behind you here, of course, is is new, but the house is still terribly big. And I, rem- I remember sitting down one afternoon, thinking, "Well, now what am I going to do with all this? I don't want to spend the rest of my life just keeping it clean." So. I thought I was very interested in food. I had um, I ha- had a little job uh, uh, writing for the Irish Farmers Journal, and um, I knew I knew a bit. And when you're writing, you also glean a great deal, and you know more at the end of it. And uh, I thought I might have a go at a restaurant. And we'd often talked about having a restaurant. Because in those days, there was no good restaurant anywhere around East Cork that one would go to, really. There were very few. So um, my husband thought it was a great idea. And uh, I opened the, re- the restaurant in 1964. Uh, sorry, 1964, yes, that was it. And... Um, We'd, we didn't advertise very much, rightly, because we wanted to get our feet under ourselves first. We none, no, none of us were trained to do it, and we sort of got there. And um, Then uh, we were in difficulty over uh, licensing uh, alcoholic drinks, because you can easily enough get a restaurant license, uh, that, but it only serves... It only enables you to serve wines and um, sherry, port perhaps. And you would get people coming in and wanting a whiskey or wanting a brandy after dinner. And that was too difficult really. And so we had the option of registering as a 
a pub, basically, or as a hotel. And we t- in order to qualify as a hotel, we had to have ten rooms available for people to stay in. So it's everything. And also at that time, I don't think they're doing it still, they were buying up two licenses. Whoever wanted to have a pub license had to buy up two extinct licenses from other publicans who were trying to sell their license. And then they would send them up to, to, and, to for a new one. And for the two licenses, you would get one. Mm-hmm. And in this way, they were reducing the number of pubs in the country. Gerald Spring Rice comes from a fascinating line of ancestors. His title was Lord Monteagle. And in 1934, he moved with his family at the age of eight to live in Mount Trenchard, which had a wonderful situation overlooking the Shannon near Fynes. And a year later, his father, Charles, bought Glanleam House on Valencia Island from his first cousins, the Knights of Kerry. And I, when I met Gerard, I first asked him what it was like to live on Valencia Island during the war years. We were brought back to Mount Trenchard, Trenchard first, in 1934. Yeah. Yeah. And then in 1935, my father brought back Glanleam from his first cousin, who was then Knight of Kerry. Well, we only went there really for the holidays and um, it was a lovely place to be. Of course, during the war, it uh, was very, very remote, although we had a railway down to the, we the most westerly railway station in, in Europe, Valencia Harbour. But it took 24 hours solid travelling f- to get back and forwards to school. One left the, we left at hopper six in the morning by pony trap and we caught an open ferry boat across to the mainland. And then, in total, we had about nine different vehicles of transport before we got to, to London at half past six the following morning. <laughs> that was if... Um, on, on, one took it totally for granted then, and I never questioned why we did this. And then my father died in 1946. Yeah. And um, we then... Um, you and I struggled to keep on Glen Leem for, I think, for seven years, but it was, it was very unviable because it was very bad land and there wasn't enough land for the farm to support the house. But we managed to keep it going, and then I very reluctantly had to sell it in 1953, and we moved back to England then. Gerald continues here talking about his father, Charles, and being very friendly with a lot of the ministers in the Irish government at that time, and also his involvement with the British Overseas Airways Cooperation, the people who operated the flying boats at Fynes in 1942. My father um, was was very interested in Irish politics and um, had one or two... Uh, for friends in the, the government over in Ireland. A particular one I always remember him talking about was Sean McEntee, and I forget which ministerial job he had. I think he'd met, you know, he had met um, Eamon de Valera and Sean the Mass. But it started in 1942. Yeah. I think it had eight directors, if that was the right term. Mm. And my father took a great interest in this. 
and it gave him a good excuse to, to spend quite a lot of time in Dublin when they had tourist board meetings. Mm-hmm. And um, he well, started, there couldn't have been a lot of travelling uh, just after the uh, well, Second World War. Well, it was just War. started. It was beginning to to start, and of course, Ireland. Um, being neutral and, and having no food rationing was a great draw to people coming over here. <laughs> I was hoping to show you some pictures of it. Um, I can't quite remember how it started, but my father um, got very in- involved and knew most of the BOAC uh, people who operated from foreigners and uh, kept had a great interest in it. And um, I was lucky enough to have a, a free trip in one of the flying boats uh, for coming back for the Easter holidays when I was in 1942. And it was a very exciting landing in a flying boat in one's home village. Yeah, And yeah. Um, I've always remembered that. And then we were very sad when the flying boats ceased and there was some technical reason why they were not viable to fly the Atlantic. And all through the war, the um, foreigners and the flying boats flew between foreigners and Newfoundland in Canada. Yes, a lot of VIPs um, flew through foreigners and who, because of Ireland being neutral, um, was supposed to come incognito. Mm. And the story goes that um, Winston Churchill was one of the People and then Field Marshal Alexander, who was a very senior general, uh, and then the, there's another story which may or may not be true that Irish coffee was invented in the the the, the, where the pub which used to be called the Monteagle Arms Hotel was taken over as I un- remember it. I'm not 100 percent sure of this, but um, taken over by BOAC as a hostel for the pilots. Oh, indeed, yeah. And the yeah. story goes, uh, a young man aged 21, I think, called Brendan O'Regan, who eventually became very well known in the tourist world, he was running the hostel in Foynes, and the story goes that he came into the, one, one morning, into the chef who was cooking the, the lunch and said, I've had a bloody awful morning, the planes have been delayed and everything's gone wrong, mix me a real strong pickup, and that is when Irish coffee was invented. <laughs> and I thought this was just a you know a, a story. And then it was mentioned on a, a, a English tourist um, television program, and also in one of the English papers on the holiday article about Ireland. So I thought, and then Brendan O'Regan actually told me this personally that this has happened. So I, I think it, it was. <laughs> Gerald had inherited many of the family portraits and he brought me around the house, pointed out his ancestors and spoke about them. That's the earliest portrait I've got, which is Thomas Rice. And I've gone and I've suddenly, after years, it took me years to find out what year he died and I was going to put it on there. It's 1745, I think he died, and uh, then I've gone and lost the actual date. And then his son is here, called Stephen Rice, and he married Miss Spring. And their son was the first Monteagle who was Chancellor for four years. 
My, um, this yes. is rather one interesting. This is when you... Um, my parents always thought it was the actual bu- box the budget was produced in, but I don't know if that's true. But each minister of the Crown you always get got... You're allowed to take your dispatch box away with you when you left. All right. And I okay. realize one of my favorite bits of memorabilia. This was my great uncle, was one with Horace Plunkett. Was very, he was made one of the Knights of St. Patrick with this is his insignia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, the art, yes. And um, which is the Star of St. Patrick, which is the same. The Irish Guards modeled their cap star on the Knights of St. Patrick. And then this is a, this is an interesting um, history of this. Does the name Dermot O'Brien ring a bell? It does, he of course. He was a very well-known artist. And yes. President, and he was a cousin of mine as well. And the story of this, this house called Curra Chase, in just outside County Limerick, uh, was owned by a rather scatty cousin of mine called Isabel de Vere. And she owned a, a family picture by Zoffany, who was a very well-known artist. And Dermot O'Brien, the story goes, um, asked permission of Isabel de Vere to copy the Zoffany. And she said, no, you can't. So the story goes, he climbed up the ladder and got in through a window and painted this copy. And then Carlo Chase was burnt down accidentally because the housemaid went to sleep with a cigarette. And that's the only... One left. Oh my goodness, yes. Um, but it's one of my favourite pictures. Oh, it's as beautiful. I'm, I'm just wondering how it compares. Yes. It's but magnificent, it's, and you're so lucky to have it, really. I know. Absolutely, yeah. I not <laughs> <laughs> And then some more pictures. This is the best. No, um, she is uh, um, Mary Spring Rice, who was. I think initiated the hose gun running. Does that oh, ring a bell? Yes, it does indeed. In 1913, and the yes. um, wait a minute, I just put the light on. It works. Now, what, what, what? She was my father's first cousin. Yes, she was very pro. Uh, people don't understand nowadays in all the troubles. They, everyone thinks that you either. Uh, if you're pro-Irish, you're totally anti-British, and vice versa. And that was not the case with my family, because they all had a life in London as well, most of them, particularly the ones in politics. And uh, her father was took a very quite an active part in the House of Lords, the one who started the cooperative movement. And she just loved Ireland and thought that Ireland were getting a very raw deal by the British government, which I think she was correct in. And as I understand it, the... Um, uh, Oster volunteers under Carson imported a, a large consignment of arms into the, I think, into the north. And she decided, um, and with various other people, and I think Roger Caseman was sort of involved in the thing, that they would go to Germany and acquire a load of arms, which they sailed in this open boat called the Asgard, uh, into Hoth. All our family were very sort of pro-Irish, they, but they weren't anti-British mm. at all. And, and um, as I say, they had foot in both camps. And finally, Gerald pointed out the visitor's book and the signatures in it. Right. There's Roger Casement. 
oh, yes. in Irish as well. And uh, these were some of the people. So that's Creevine, that's Douglas Hyde. Creevine Evine, I called himself in Irish. That's Horace Plunkett I was telling you about. And Bertrand Russell, who was quite a well-known. Now, they were all in, in 1906. Yes. Yeah. He was a very famous practical joker. To, to Horace Cole, and I think his he was connected by marriage to Neville Chamberlain, you know, who was mm-hmm. Prime Minister in Munich. Well, we've come to the end of this week's podcast, Voices from the Great Houses. To create this podcast, I had to select highlights taken from recordings that I made over the years, and if you would like to hear the full interviews you can go to irishlifeandlore.com and there you can access the full interview. My name is Maurice O'Keefe and I look forward again to bringing you another podcast next week. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.